Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Historical Fiction, Making the Past Present, featuring Ali Alizadeh, Jesse Blackadder and Chris Womersley in conversation with Nicole Aberdee, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. So let's have a, have a little bit of a think about historical fiction to start with. Um, Hilary Mantel, twice Booker Prize winner for her Tudor novels, <laughs> Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, and the doyen of historical fiction, recently had this to say about it. The job of the author of historical fiction is not to be an inferior sort of historian, but to recreate the texture of lived experience, to activate the senses, and to deepen the reader's engagement through feeling. Historical fiction has become an increasingly important genre these days, in part due to Hilary Mantel's work. Mm. And today we're very fortunate to be here from three leading Australian writers. So I'm going to start by asking some general questions to all of our panellists, and then I'll move to ask each of them questions about, <laughs> about their books. My first question is, what is the best thing about writing historical fiction? Ali? Um, yeah, look, it's great. Just, just, I just want to make one uh, comment about um, Chris's The Objects in the House. I've, I've got a huge collection of Joan of Arc statues and toys. I, I wow. collect, they exist, actually. I don't know if anyone's aware, but anyway, wow. I'm allowed to keep them at home, I think. But this is just, the whole can... house is turning into Jeanne d'Arc Shrine and my office at work, too, which is... But but anyway, uh, look. I mean, that, I guess that leads into saying that um, um, I, don't, I don't know about um, others in the panel, but I'm personally a real aficionado of history, and I get obsessed with historical figures. So um, I I don't um, sort of shop around for subject matter. I, I spoke to another author recently who had written a book about Joan of Arc, and and she said, look, I was commissioned to write about her. I I didn't know anything about her. I had to go to Wikipedia to find out who she was. And I'm like, wow, well, I was a, I've been obsessed with her forever. <laughs> uh, and, and for me, I had to sort of convince um, people to that I would be able to write about her because I'm not a historical fiction writer by uh, um, training, I suppose. I'm more of a poet. But um, so, so to, me, to me, it grows out of a real amateurish love of history, a sort of an obsession with a historical figure. And, and then being able to retell that story because... If, like me, you've been reading about a particular character or event or a period for a long time, you begin to develop your own image of what it would have looked like, what that person would have really been like. And then to be able to retell that, to be able to create that version, um, well, what can you do? You, you can do a, you can try to make a movie about it, but not very possible. Or, or you can write a novel. You can write poems, and I think that's that's what historical fiction allows me is to to convey how I would have uh, how I picture the past. Thank you, um, Jesse. Yeah. Tax deductible travel <laughs> <laughs> entirely my motivation. <laughs> Look, I <laughs> don't tell everyone. Look, I, I wouldn't even say I'm I'm a passionate history buff, but what would happen to me is that something would fascinate me. Mm. Um, so with Chasing the Light, product placement moment, um, <laughs> I, you know, there, there are those incredible stories of Antarctica, of those heroic journeys made by the male explorers, Scott, Shackleton, Amundsen, epic stories. And I guess I thought, how come you never read about any epic stories about women going there? 
So it was just that question. Um, also, there did happen to be an Antarctic Arts Fellowship uh, that I could apply for. But, yeah, that question is, is what burned at me. And I think, you know, you find one thing, and it, it doesn't even need to be a big thing, does it? It's, it's often a clue, it's often a gap, it's something missing in the historic record, and then, and then you go, why? Why? What is the answer to that question? And, you know, that was a, there was actually quite a complicated answer to the question of why there were no women, women's stories. And, in fact, there was an entire continent where women were banned from entering a continent. And that was quite shocking to really sit with the reality of that fact. And so that fueled the writing of the book, I guess. Oh, well, we're looking. We're looking. <laughs> Here in row two... <laughs> I thought it was mine, actually, so that was a relief. Uh, I think he came in after the announcement. So. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> what's the best thing for you about writing historical fiction? Well, in some ways the best thing about writing fiction in general is sort of being able to find some obscure thing to be mildly obsessed about and, <laughs> and then turn it into sort of something, you know, a, a kind of a career. Um, but, yeah, I'm probably a bit of a history nerd and it's taken me a long time to acknowledge that fact about myself because it does seem kind of lame. I mean, I'm not an academic mm. or anything like that, but... I would not want to have the History Channel on, like, Foxtel or whatever it is because I could probably become interested in anything. You know what I mean? Like, sort of like, oh, mechanical engineering over the 14th century. That's, you know, like, there's a... I just... And it is true that truth is stranger than fiction often. And, you know, the Joan of Arc stories are sort of a great example in the sense that... Um, I would have thought many years ago that Joan of Arc was a mythical figure, probably because the story is almost too ridiculous and extraordinary that a 14, 15-year-old peasant girl would sort of take on the might of the English army, for example, in 14, whatever it was. But um, so things like that. And also, you know, I guess in, in City of Crows, the witchcraft and stuff, which is all based on fact. So it's a sort of... Um, its ability to find something and burrow down into it as deeply as you can and kind of make something new and fresh and about it. And can I just add too, it's also the um, the stitching together of what mm. you find into a, mm. a narrative, which is delightful, and you find yeah. something that's like, yes, that is going to be such an exciting thing and, you know, there, there are things you have to throw out, but, yeah, it's investigating and then it's working out, you know, is has real fact cooperated with me and given me a really nice story setting or am I going to have to work very hard to get this into a narrative structure? Yeah. I really, in, in my second novel, Bereft, which is set in 1919, um, the Spanish flu and stuff, and I really wanted to get Conan Doyle into it. Conan Doyle was a big proponent of spiritualism um, long after most people had sort of realised it was sort of bunkum, uh, Conan Doyle, and toured out to Australia, I think, in 1929 and did a lecture tour of the country and all this kind of stuff, but I just couldn't squeeze him. You know, the time was just wrong. I was like, man, why didn't you come out 10 years earlier? Because um, I would have loved to have just gotten him in there somehow, but, yeah, it's a good example. Mm -hmm. That's, you just got to chuck stuff out. What's the most challenging thing about writing historical fiction? Jesse, I'll start with you this time. Well, I think when I wrote my first one, product placement number two, you guys are being a bit slow with the product placement. <laughs> I didn't even have a copy that of my book. You, you saw it here first. <laughs> Mine looks a little bit like this, actually. It does, it's got a bigger bird. He's got a bigger bird on his. Um, I, 
because I didn't have a background in history, uh, I had an incredible naivety. So I went, oh, the real Blackadders in the 16th century were kind of wrapped up with Mary, Queen of Scots. That sounds like a cool thing to write about, mm. with uh, really having no sense of the task that I was taking on to, mm. to actually carry out a credible piece of research and create a work of fiction out of it. So it took years. It, it took me about, mm. I think, six years to write that book. So if I'd known at the beginning the work that was involved, I might have been a bit more daunted. And, and certainly when I went into the second one, Chasing the Light, I was more realistic about what would be involved and I enrolled in a PhD and got a scholarship to help me through that time. I was going to ask you, was it easier the second time? Yeah, it was. I mean, it's still a lot of work, but at least I knew to expect that the second time. Ali, what did mm. you find the most challenging? Um, I mean, I think I totally agree with um, what, the, what these guys said, but what Chris says about, you know, truth being stranger than fiction because... That's my real problem is that the more I, because I, I, I'm a, you know, I, I research history very thoroughly and the more I learn about what happened, the more I realize that I can't, mm. I can't write anything that could match that. You know, one of the first books that I read um, when I started researching about uh, Jeanne d'Arc, you know, 20, 30 years ago in English was, um, was Barbara Tuckman's amazing book called The Distant Mirror. Uh, and, you know, you think, we think history is boring. Some people do, but you read this book, it is... These un people don't. <laughs> <laughs> You're our people. Yeah, yeah. But, but, I mean, she, she puts any, any fiction novelist, any novelist to shame. I mean, she finds a historical character, this late, late medieval French knight. She follows him. She, it's unbelievable. It's a page turner. And so that's the problem. Recently, I'm currently researching about the French Revolution because that's going to be one of my next books. And, <laughs> and yeah, a lot of French Revolution scholarship is quite boring and turgid and scholarly. And I'm thinking, yeah, I can bring this to life like Mansell says and blah, blah. And then I read a book just a couple of weeks ago by a um, late American historian called E. Palmer called The Twelfth Who Ruled. And if you're interested in the French Revolution, you've got to read that. And I couldn't even go to sleep. I had to get up in the middle of the night to keep reading because everything in it is, in it is fresh and original. Everything in it is factual. Everything in it is completely counterintuitive and provocative. And it's traditional history. And how am I going to match that? So that's that's my real difficulty because I actually genuinely love history and I feel this competition is one that I'm going to lose. <laughs> Chris. How does it end, the French Revolution? <laughs> It, it has not ended yet. It's still yeah, it, It's too early yeah, to tell. It's too early to tell. That's what Joanne Lai said. It's too early to tell. Yeah. Uh, challenge. Ah, oh, they're all challenges. Um, well, yeah. I mean, in theory, I've, I mean, I've written four novels, and in theory, three of them are historical fiction. Uh, even Cairo, which is set in the mid '80s, uh, which would make it a vintage car. So, yeah. Um, but certainly. City of Crows, the trickiest thing is the voice, you know what I mean? And uh, I, I sort of, it took me a long time to start the book because, uh, I mean, there's all the problems of, you know, story and character and stuff. But um, the voice, you know, voice is kind of everything in fiction in general and in historical fiction. I think it's kind of perhaps even more crucial. Um, in fact, I'm writing sort of, although it's not a first person narrative, it's a sort of a close third person. So it's effectively in the voice of two of the main characters so not only are they in the in the 17th century but they're kind of speaking French and they're kind of speaking um, kind of perhaps a Shakespearean version of French or something which mm. is clearly I'm not going to write that um, so it's a matter of finding um, linguistic I mean and the way people talk in a novel is never the way people talk in real life anyway you're always kind of having an approximation of things but getting back to Hilary Mantel who is you know 
the queen of this stuff, I guess, in terms of kind of literary historical fiction. I remember her sort of saying that she struggled over the word at one of her characters, Cromwell, Cromwell, um, was bored and she kept going back to it thinking, boredom. And she realised that in the 16th century, thought the idea of boredom is probably not the right idea, that tedium is better. Mm. People weren't bored in the 16th century because you've got to work hard just to stay alive. And they didn't have iPads and stuff like that. So, um, so little minute... Things like that, I think, make all the difference. I um, in, in City of Crows, I thought early on that my characters would never... So I had a few kind of rules about the characters and I thought my characters would never think of time in terms of minutes or hours, which is not to say that minutes or hours didn't exist because, in fact, t you know, clocks existed and stuff. But So never, there's never a point in the narrative where it says, you know, two hours later, um, Lesage returned from blah, blah, blah. It's like sometime later or, you know, people, I imagine people thought in terms of seasons, uh, in terms of prayer times, you know, matins and all this kind of stuff, um, dawn and dusk, you know. So a few little, I had a few little sort of rules around that sort of stuff in order to try and get into the headspace of, of people who are in some ways very distant to me but in some ways not. Are there any particular writers of historical fiction that you admire or that have influenced you in your writing? Chris, I'll start with you. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'm a big reader of historical fiction, to be honest, but Hilary Mantel, <laughs> you know, is like, I just think that, that Wolf Hall is kind of amazing in the sense of its kind of immediacy and its sort of ability to... I think there's a risk in, his, in any fiction but with historical fiction in making a sort of a, <laughs> a fetish of the historical period in terms of the way people dress or speak or something like that. Um, and in, so, so I'm not kind of interested in that sort of element of it, I guess. It's about, um, it's always, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'll defer to the other panellists. Jesse, Without a doubt, Jeanette Winterson. Mm. Oh, yeah. Who I mm. first read, mm. you know, in my, I think I was 20 or something when I first read The Passion, which is uh, set in the Napoleonic Wars. It is so not a piece of historical fiction and yet it is so i can't imagine jeanette winterson is lying awake at night thinking about you know some of the things we might think about you know did i get the right morsel of food on the mm. table or did they go to the <laughs> toilet in the correct manner um she just mm. i don't know she just had such an original way of entering a, a historical period and expressing it yeah not like anyone else and and still, I think those are her greatest works, those, mm. those beautiful pieces set in, you know, quite mystical periods almost, you know, like historic England, historic um, France, that it swept me into another world without making me think I was getting a history lesson. Mm. Mm. Ali? I'll just have to second that. I think, I think um, after I wrote my novel, I, I reread it and I thought, oh, my God, this is based on, on, on the passion because... Wow. That book has really affected me so strongly. But I also want to say that even though it's sort of magical realism, there is a woman with webbed toes. Is that the yes. one? Yeah, yeah, she's amazing because it's kind of a metaphor for um, uh, synecdoche of her sexuality. But but it's actually quite historically accurate too because what, it was one of the first books that actually tells us about the women who followed Napoleonic armies because we don't, you know, traditional history doesn't tell us that. So it's, it's yeah, that, that book I think was very... Very influential, but precisely as Chris says, because it doesn't write in an oldie worldy, artificially kind of dated style, which I think all of us, none of us do. I think after Mantel, we've all learned that no, you can actually modernize without, without uh, modernizing too much. Mm. Or something. She's been a game changer, hasn't she? Mm. Really. Mm. 
to use a current term. Mm. Well, she wrote a big novel about the French Revolution too, yes. I had to tell you. But, I yeah. know, I know, I've read it. There's, yeah, your, yeah. there's your competition. I do know, yes, <laughs> yes, but no, mine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Ali, yeah. I'll move yeah. now to ask you some questions about mm. your absolutely beautiful novel, The Last Days of Jeanne d'Arc. It's a beautiful cover as well, but the um, fiction is just extraordinary. Ali, I know that you have had a long fascination with Joan of Arc. You've told us now about your merchandise collection. That's right, um, that's right. For your thesis on epic poetry, you actually wrote an epic poem about her. <coughs> what mm. is it that sparked your interest in Joan of Arc? Um, I mean, I was, a, I was a child when I first um, found out about her. Um, I was very little. And I remember there was a bookshop in... Um, in Tehran, the city where I was born, it was a, it was called the Jandak uh, Bookshop. Wow. It must have been um, must have been put there by by French missionaries who were in Iran before the Islamic um, Revolution, and uh, but it somehow must have survived it um, because I was a child when the revolution happened, so I must have seen it a few years after. It's amazing that it survived. It's kind of that might be an interesting to story because a lot of Western, you know, signs of Eurocentrism and Western culture were erased. Something that I think was a disaster is would be a disaster if we get too preoccupied with wanting to expunge Eurocentrism mm. and so on. I think that would be a disaster for Australia and the rest of the world um, because of the emancipatory potential of European culture mm. and other cultures, of course. So I think I think Jean d'Arc is a figure, and I remember. Um, so I guess I was lucky that this bookshop's name survived. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what books they were selling. And also the painting on the uh, sign that hung outside the bookshop survived. And I saw this image of a knight. And whoever I was with, I said, oh, there's a knight. You know, who is that? And they said, oh, that's, that's Jeanne d'Arc. And I said, oh, okay, whatever. And they said, that's a woman. And I said, no, that's not a woman. That's, that's got to be a man. They said, no, no, that is a French woman who was a knight. And that's sort of... That sort of um, in, in really unlikelihood of such a thing being true made me want to find mm. out if it was true. And again, the more I read, the more I realized it's actually the reality of it is so much stranger than any sort of fantasy or fiction of, you know, uh, people crossing gender divides. I mean, the reality of it is much more shocking in many ways and much more interesting. Um, You've given a lovely description. You've said that, in your view, um, Joan of Arc, despite living a good 350 years before the advent of the modern revolution, mm. is an exemplary materialization of the figure of the revolutionary. Mm. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I will, I will exactly. Well, I mean, I would say that for me, when I talk about revolution, I do mean a tradition that begins with the French Revolution of 1789. I'm, I'm a bit sort of pedantic about that, but I would, I think, as a, as an individual, as a subject, she sort of embodies that, and I think it's because she universalizes or, or works for a universality. You know, like uh, revolutionaries don't fight for an individual or identitarian concerns. I mean, they can do that. Of course, we all do that in our daily lives. But when you say, I'm fighting on behalf of humanity or the biggest possible collective or the people, in a way that, you know, uh, uh, you, you sort of like personalize politics. You know, politics, it's not so much that the, you know, personal is political, but the political is personal. And at that moment, you feel like the destiny of humanity depends on what your individual actions might be highly pretentious and egomaniacal of a person to assume so yes but also but also i think that's the beginning of a revolutionary thinking you know and i think that's 
You could find that in the writings of, you know, Chair Lenin, etc. You know, uh, Rosa Luxemburg. The moments where you realize the fate of humanity might depend on what you wear, <laughs> you know, uh, not not the fate of your own group mm -hmm. of people or your own tribe or whatever, but humanity, universality as such. And I think she stands in for for. She's one of the first figures of universalism in history, I think. I know that you've dedicated many decades, two or three decades mm. of your life, to researching her. What would you say to people that are interested in Joan of Arc? Where should they start? Well, my book. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, they, they shouldn't. I, I mean, no, look, the records, I mean... <laughs> no, I, I, I think the records are... We're very lucky. Um, uh, Jean is, is, is alive for us. We can go back to the actual transcripts of her trials, which were... Where do you uh, find those? Uh, they actually are in a sort of an affordable English, modern English version now. They weren't there when I first began my research. You I had to are go they to online, libraries. Um, no, one of the American uni presses has that. Uh, you can find it if you do like uh, the trial of Joan of Arc. It's around 40 or 50 bucks, but yeah. it's in one English accessible volume. Mm -hmm. um, it's that, that would be the go-to um, source, and it's a complete uh, trial record, so it's really amazing. Um, begin with there, and then there's amazing, you know, historical work by a, a, a late French historian, Regine Pernou. Um, in English, there's a lot of her work uh, translated. Um, if you can afford to, like, you know, go to go to France, go to Rouen. There's an amazing new museum. It's been there for a few years called Jeanne d'Arc Historial. Um, they have, like, you know, uh, they have, you can you can listen to interviews with major historians in different languages and ask them questions. It's a bit weird, it's a bit interactive, and there's holograms of historians, but, but that's good. But I think, I think yeah, definitely. The, the more, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of primary records, and mm -hmm. we're very lucky, even though she's a figure of early history, actual documents survive, and they've been translated into modern English, and you, we can all read them. What is particularly fascinating about Ali's story is that in your account, you've portrayed, um, I'll call her Joan, you've portrayed Joan as gay. You've portrayed in vivid detail a passionate love affair between her and Pierron that is absolutely central to her life. Are you the first writer to suggest that there was that relationship? Mm. Um, well, the, I would say to the extent that I have, I am the first one, um, I think that uh, well, Vika Sackville-West, um, um, in her biography, has one sentence because Jeanne said that she preferred, during, um, during her campaigns, she preferred to sleep in her tents with young women. That doesn't necessarily mean that she was sleeping with them sexually, but it, because that's, you know, in the Middle Ages, people of the same gender usually shared sleeping quarters. But, but Vika um, Sackville-West says that the youth um, adjective could give away something about a sexual desire, maybe, on the part of Jeanne. So that, that's about it, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there is a few other historians that have speculated, but they said, look, there is no proof, and so let's not even go there. And of course, when you have this in strong um, religious tradition, mm -hmm. beginning from the 1920s, which has made her a saint, etc., yeah. it would seem that it would be sacrilegious to say that, and it would be desecrating. And I'm, I'm the last person who would want to desecrate her. So, so I've, yeah. Ali's description of this relationship is absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's a it's a really key part of his book. I'm interested. We talked a little bit yesterday, you and I, about the response that you'd had from certain historians. Mm -hmm. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Oh, I haven't really. I mean, I'm, 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 I mean, hopefully it will be av made available in France because that's where the um, bulk of the his historical research about her would be. Um, I, I think a lot of people said, well, 
the potential in the narrative is there, right? The, the young woman, cross-dresser, you know, etc., um, etc. Et There's quite a lot of a lot of people say, well, we always suspected it, but nobody has been out saying it. But but I, but I think the reluctance in the way that I would I've been very cautious in the way that I've depicted it in my writing is is to really not conform this great historical narrative into our contemporary ideological concerns and i'm completely against that you know i'm not i have not written this book to pr preach any, anything yeah. whatsoever and i don't i don't think her, her possibly being queer in any way um you know fetishizes or denigrates her story it's just it's just a fact of her life in ali's say. story it enriches um, the story mm. immensely that dimension yeah i think um one of the things that i like most about your book other than the portrayal of that relationship, was your portrayal of Joan's inner life. We get a deep insight into her thoughts, her feelings. You really made mm. her jump off the page. And what I wondered was how did you put yourself so convincingly into the shoes of a 19-year-old warrior saint who lived 600 years ago? Yeah. I, I mean, the simple answer is that, you know, I gave her more on humanity because I don't believe we're different. I mm. really don't. I mean, yes, we age, we're living in the age of eat poll, blah, blah, but I don't believe any of it. We're all the same, mm. really. From a distance, if aliens came from another planet and looked at us, they would look at the same way we look at cockroaches. Like, are they different? Are they different races, identities, and so on? No, they're the same species. I really feel that. So I've given her a lot of myself. Mm. I don't, you know, if it makes it convincing and believable, it's because I've given her a lot of, I, I gave her my own emotional, psychological problems. <laughs> um, you know, I don't. So, it, you know, in that in that sense, that's an know. insight. Yeah, <laughs> into both of you. Um, Ali, thank you so much. Mm. Jesse, I'd like to ask you now about your beautiful book. I'll do a bit of product placement as well. Chasing the light. It's a stunning cover. In fact, mm. I'm going to start by asking you. Told us a story in the green room about this fabulous cover. Could you? Uh, could you? Share it with the yeah, people sure. here. Yeah, sure. So it, you, the cover shows a woman underwater underneath an iceberg. And, you know, when HarperCollins sent me the, the cover design, of course I assumed it was a photoshopped image. You know, it's a Photoshop picture of a woman underwater and they've put an iceberg on the top. <coughs> what, after the book came out, I got an email from the photography team that shot this. And the woman is at, was at that time the Russian... Um, free diving world champion and she was diving in the Baltic Sea under an iceberg in that shoot and they sent me a, a link to the story of the shoot you know and they're cutting the hole in the in the ice her going in um, and she also had a really passionate thing about whales so it was we had a quite a lovely correspondence um, over a few emails about you know her that image turning up on my book which is about women and whales and ice mm. it was really beautiful mm. jesse what made you decide to write a novel about the first women to visit antarctica in the 1930s what was it that sparked your interest Tax deductible of course <laughs> well actually unlike most of my other novels it was it was prompted by hearing that there was an antarctic mm. arts fellowship you know and and but i knew that i would have to have a great project in order to apply for that. So in a sense, I did go looking. Mm. I went looking for the subject of that book, but I went looking, I had already written um, The Raven's Heart product placement. Um, so, and I loved that experience of writing historical fiction. And I thought I would like to do that again. And I think you are, as a writer, you are alert to the clues or the little gems that are going to become your abiding obsession for the next mm. five years. And so, in a way, the Arts Fellowship 
was just an alert to there's something here because otherwise you wouldn't be interested in going to Antarctica and it, and it had become quite a you know, strong desire to go there. So I was like, there's something there for me to look at, so what is it? And I went down to the wonderful Mitchell Library and I found this great photo which uh, apparently depicted two of the earliest women to go to Antarctica and one of them had this incredibly cheeky smile and it was her smile in the photograph. And it was like, I think she is my character and and that sort of set me on the journey and, and it was... You know, I think the first time I applied for the Arts Fellowship and, again, it, this is just the process of the idea coming into form, you know, it was very vague and very general and, you know, really it didn't sort of stand up so it didn't get a look in at all. And a year later when I applied again, I'd done much more thinking and much more research and, and it was really starting to firm up and turn into something and I got shortlisted. So, you know, the world was sort of telling me that, that this is, you know, the idea is coalescing slowly. Uh, and then by the time I applied the third time, I was really solid by then. I had enrolled in a PhD. I had become very focused on the research. I had looked at just the fascinating writings about Antarctica and the mythologies of that amazing place, how stories are told, what stories are told, what stories aren't told. Uh, you know, the literature of Antarctica is international. It's unlike any other country because it's mm. all written by the people who visit from all over the world. So I became immersed in that world and, and went from there. Jessie, the woman in the photograph that you're talking about is um, Ingrid Christensen, who becomes really the main character in your book. Could you tell us about her? What sort of a woman was she? She was a terrible disappointment to me because I imagined... <laughs> I imagine, you know, wow, the first women who went to Antarctica went as part of the Norwegian whaling fleet in the 1930s. I pictured this intrepid young adventurer and she turned out to be a, I guess, probably middle-aged mother of six children married to one of the richest men in Norway who owned the whaling fleet. It's like, oh, <laughs> damn. She, you know, she is not going to be a great leading lady in my book. Um, and it did really change the, the subject of the book because what I had to look at was not uh, an intrepid pioneer overcoming external mm -hmm. obstacles, which is the grand heroic mm -hmm. narrative of Antarctica is exactly that. You know, you preferably you die along the way or you eat your dogs or you nearly die or your feet fall off. Um, you know, you are Sounds not great. a wealthy Norwegian woman going down as part of the whaling fleet, do you know, to kill hundreds if not thousands of blue whales when you're down there. So, you know, it was a confronting story for me to then go, gosh, so this is what history is presenting to me as, as this story. Now how will I work with this? And how can I bring a richness to that story that really on the surface looks like a tale of privilege? And, and she does do the way – sorry, Jessie does exactly that. She's not doing herself justice the way that she describes Ingrid – all of the things that you say, those are the external circumstances, but the way that you portray the relationship between her and her husband, which is a relationship given the time period of some equality, she has to leave behind her six children, which was a pretty amazing thing to do in those days, and Jessie's turned her into a fascinating character. Um, I read that you met with her granddaughter and that you also you corresponded with her grandson. How was that? Oh, it was fantastic. I'd, I'd gone to Sunderfjord, the, the town where they were, and I had 
I mean, it's it's always hard working in another language because, of, you know, of course I had no Norwegian, so I was relying on sources that were in English or mm. people that might be able to help me. I was looking at her husband's handwritten diaries which were held in a museum, which of course were all in Norwegian, except mm. where he had pasted English newspaper articles into them, so occasionally I could read them. I had identified the page that held the answer to my question of mm. who was the first woman to land, and it was in Norwegian. So it's like, I know the answer is on this page because of the that? date. The oh, date. The date. Oh. I knew they they had landed. Um, so, that, you know, that whole research was a little bit challenging. And the day that I was leaving that town, one of the historians said to me, oh, yes, I, I um, you know, know Ingrid's uh, granddaughter. And I was like, what? Um, because I had I'd had no success in finding the family, and probably just my own inadequacy as you know turning up in Norway and not even really knowing how to look for a person. Um, so we met, you know, we we met an hour before my train was leaving, and she had some of the other diaries, you know, in a box in her cupboard, and and we had a wonderful time, and we stayed in touch, and then um, you know I went back with the book, and I think the most amazing thing was that she understood. I don't know how she did, but she understood my intent as a novelist. So she understood that I was fictionalising her grandmother and I wasn't showing her as, you know, a saint in any way. She She's a very flawed character and I, her granddaughter, I guess, more or less gave me her blessing to do that and, and it was based on what I understood about her from conversations and correspondence and, you know, I didn't just make it up but nevertheless I... I represented this woman in a way that, you know, maybe not every family would be happy with. And, and it meant a lot to have her blessing and to have her, not just her blessing but her understanding of what it was I wanted to do as a novelist. Um, did she speak English? Perfectly, like so, most Norwegians, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Like really, <laughs> they, nuts, they put me to shame, them. yeah. Um, Jessie, what did she think of the book when she read it? She really loved the book. And I had the amazing experience of going back uh, a couple of years later when the book came out and I was – giving a, a talk at the uh, conference on the history of whaling and it was the evening speech and I did a slideshow with my Antarctic images and the images of Ingrid and and then I was able to say, and her granddaughter is sitting here and so is her great-granddaughter wow. who I had met. Mm. And, and, you know, there was just this sense of uh, Ingrid had never been recognised in Norway for what she had done and the journey she had gone on. And so to be able to say, wow, this weird woman from Australia came all the way over to try and dig up some facts and, uh, and in fact, put her on the historic record. She's now on the record. Part of Antarctica was named for her, right? That's right. Ingrid that's right. Where uh, Davis Station is today, where one of Australia's uh, Antarctic stations is actually called Ingrid Christensen Land. And so when I went on the fellowship, I was on Ingrid Christensen land. And because it had taken me a long time to get there, that was actually a very emotional realisation to, to realise I was standing there. And then I got taken up in a helicopter and I was looking on Ingrid Christensen land and she had also flown over it in a two-seater mm. plane and I, I was just bawling behind my sunglasses, and partly because it was just so beautiful but also this... I mean, these are, you know, this gives you an idea of the strange, strange obsessions that we have, you know. This woman I've never met that I have no connection to but I'm weeping because of something that has joined us in this life that, you know, she could never have imagined in her life. Mm. So you did the trip as part of the um, – needless to say, Jessie won the fellowship, the Australian Antarctic Arts <laughs> Fellowship, and that, as you said, enabled you to travel to Antarctica. And I wondered how – 
that experience of actually travelling to Antarctica and, and seeing it yourself, how that informed your writing? Very profoundly and, and maybe not in the way you'd expect because I had this very rich Antarctica of my imagination that was living inside me and it was a, a very interesting and rich place and then suddenly the real place inhabited that instead and the real place was realer, um, less romantic and more romantic in a sense. You know, In some way it's like, oh yes, it's, it's a real place, it stinks if you're near penguins, uh, you know, it's cold or it's uncomfortable and also its grandeur is in some ways beyond what I could imagine. So it was it was very interesting, and it it operated in both ways. Um, and also, I had written their voyage down. You know, I think in my first draft, I had written it in three or four pages, and then making a voyage of the same length made me realise that was the journey. That mm. was actually I couldn't. It wasn't the means to get there. It it was the journey, and uh, a lot of chasing the light takes place on the ship. So mm. that. Uh, experience of going on a, a journey by ship of the same length was fantastic. I wanted to ask you about that, your description. So it was Ingrid and two other women that travelled with her and Jessie um, describes very vividly what the conditions, what the ship itself was like and what conditions were like on board the ship. How did you research that material? Partly, well, you know, I was on a ship that um, was probably a similar size ship to the one that she went on. And in fact, it was a not dissimilar experience, which was, you know, we were very isolated from the world for that two weeks, which was the same amount of time as she was on. You know, if even in the modern era, if something went wrong, we were a very long way from help. Mm. Um, just like she would have been. Did you have to take your appendix out before you went? <laughs> no, but neither did she. So. Oh, really? <laughs> Nowadays, only the doctor has to have their appendix removed. In the, old, in the olden wow. days of the Antarctic bases, I think everybody did, but oh. there was a story of a doctor yes. who had to take out their own appendix. Oh, my yes. God. So um, yeah. now the doctor has to do it. But, yeah, it, w it was actually a lived experience. It was, you know, even though I was going 70 years later, there was so much commonality between our two voyages because she was a privileged woman and, you know, I was had the privilege of going as an arts fellow, so we both occupied that place as well. Something that you make clear in your book and you make it part of the dedication is the fact that um, many women who had wanted to travel to Antarctica <laughs> over the years just weren't allowed to. And you, you've said that that was right up until the 1970s, which I just found breathtaking. Starting with Mari Stopes, who you write about in your book, could you tell us a, a little bit about that history of women being actually prevented from oh, travelling to Antarctica? It, it was an intriguing history, and that was probably the most interesting thing I found in my research was the, the documentary evidence of, you know, women oh, naively thinking that you could apply for an Antarctic expedition like a man and maybe you'd have a chance of going. So qualified women, you know, dating back to Mari Stopes, I think it was in mm. 1912, Wait, if yeah. I'm remembering rightly. Mm. Um, you know, what happened? Asking, Tell us about, yeah. Well, she met uh, Robert Falcon Scott at a fundraising ball and before she was uh, a sexuality and birth control campaigner, she was a paleobotanist um, and a very esteemed one. So, you know, very... Uh, unusual for a woman in that time and she was working at uh, a university very high up and she had a theory about the joining of the continents the Gondwana theory and she knew that she could test that theory if she could go to Antarctica and gather rocks and look for fossil evidence and so she asked Robert Falcon Scott if she could join his expedition and uh, and he sort of you know I think maybe led her on a little bit maybe until she'd made a donation to the uh, to the trip yeah. and then he said no um, but he did come to her for training yeah. 
for to how to identify those rocks. And you know, the most poignant part of that story is he and his men were carrying 12 pounds of rocks on their last trip. And if they'd left those rocks, would they have got one day further? Who knows? But they were carrying those rocks as some of their most precious specimens when they died. And Jesse, you talk about that in the book, and you, you have the Mari Stopes character saying that, that, yes, that she told Scott what to look for, and he found these rocks based on what she told him. And then, but then eventually, they none of them came back to her. They ended up going to Cambridge University. Was that true? You're, you're testing my memory now uh, because it's a few I'm years sorry, ago I that I wrote it, but I'm spot, pretty but sure it was true. And yeah. It was just extraordinary. Yeah. Thank you very much. So our third writer today, Chris Wormsley, has written this wonderful book, City of Crows, set in 17th century uh, Paris. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it, Chris? Oh, yeah. Uh, City of Crows is set in 1673, and I guess loosely speaking it's the story of um, a woman who turns to the, the occult in order to rescue her son who's been abducted by, um, by some bad people um, in the 17th century. So it's a book that was... Um, you know, it's sort of clearly being a writer and a big reader and stuff, I have a sort of an interest or a sort of a fetish in the power of books and stuff. And I was in um, Brunswick Street Bookstore in Melbourne and they know me a bit, little bit there because I've spent thousands of dollars there. <laughs> All tax deductible, of course, as you would know, Jesse. Um, <laughs> and I was in there and uh, the woman sort of said, oh, I've just got a book that's come in that you might be interested in. And uh, it was a book about grimoires and grimoires are books of magic spells, essentially, that were kind of very popular in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. And they were sort of herbal law, but also contained very sort of occult things for um, finding money, having more sex, erectile dysfunction, you know, hemorrhoids, all this kind of stuff, as well as calling up devils and um, and things like that. And so sort of that sort of intrigued my... Uh, piqued my attention I guess I mean I don't use the word grimoire in the book sadly because it's um it wasn't into common use until about 100 years later Chris what does it mean I'm sorry grimoire is actually I think there's a little debate over the etymology it's uh, it might come from a French word for grammar which is sort of just a generic name for books obviously books are kind of a newish type thing um in the you know 15th 16th 17th century um so and a grimoire was, you know, during the years of the Inquisition, if you were caught in possession of a grimoire, you'd be burnt at the stake or, you know, ha have your hands cut off or something kind of delightful like that. So they were often owned by people who um, couldn't necessarily read it, but the book was believed to have a sort of a talismanic power in the same way that a, it's a sort of, you know, the dark, you know, as above, so below. It was a sort of a Bible for... Um, the punks of the 17th century or something, you know, people who were kind of... So I get, you know, I guess sort of the idea of around witchcraft and magic for me was sort of uh, this idea that magic was a way of attaining control for people who otherwise had no access to um, societal structures of control. Um, and clearly if you're a peasant, particularly a peasant woman in the 17th century, you're access to any sort of power or, you know, what we would call privilege now, I guess, was incredibly limited and limited to the fact that you may be married or you have a brother or uh, things like that. And if you're a, just, you know, a woman, you have no kind of means to control anything. And I guess there's an idea in, 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 City, of Cro in City of Crows that it's about, you know, praying to God as we may understand him in a Christian sense is about sort of um, 
supplication, whereas magic and witchcraft is about commanding the spirits, so taking charge of something. You can, you know, there's a line in the book where, you know, a woman says, you know, you've prayed for all these things and did you get what you wanted? And, and um, my main character sort of says, well, no. She says, well, it's time we took control and asked the spirit, you know, and commanded the spirits to sort of do what we want them to do. So it's about sort of people in, in to a degree accessing power um, that's otherwise denied to them. Chris, you travelled to France several times mm. to research the books I know, and one of the people that you thank in your acknowledgements is Marie Fertner. Oh, yeah. For unlocking the occult mysteries of the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you Yeah, did? the research was good, tax deductible. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was lucky enough to get an Australia Council grant. I mean, I'd been to France a bit because I had books published there, and so I sort of developed a bit of an interest in French history and... and culture and stuff and, and you know I was going there a bit and um, if anyone here has been to the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris it's like just to get in is like you need yeah it's an occult art you need, <laughs> you need to have I don't know if it's always been like this the security no doubt has been ramped up but um, you have to have an interview you get a pass um, and then you know there's all sorts of security measures and you sort of go down and through another few security measures and stuff like this and um and then you get to the bottom and you have your list of uh, books that you'd like to look at, ancient books for 500 years old, and uh, the person at the counter says, oh, it's lunchtime, you know, um, <laughs> and they go off for like five hours because it's France. Um, so, yeah, I, I, actually, I speak a little French but not great and I'm certainly, I don't have this, you know, you need a little bit of steel to get things done. There's a reason why we use the word bureaucracy, right, because it's a French word for office. <laughs> um, and uh, so Marie is a French woman and, uh, and she um, just told him what was what and got the books for me that I needed because um, I would have just gone, oh, okay, and, and lost complete confidence. And so she enabled me to. So I was sort of going to the bibliothèque to look at a whole bunch of these grimoires, which are books that are, you know, a lot of them were destroyed, obviously, during the Inquisition and over time and stuff. But there's still a lot of them around. There's one in Lyon that's bound in human skin, I think. Um, which has a particular name for that kind of book. I can't remember what it is, aside from creepy, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but it does have its own name. But um, And, yeah, there's these books. I mean, you know, one of the challenges in writing about this kind of stuff is that it's so, you know, the ideas of witchcraft and the occult have become very sort of domesticated, you know what I mean? And it's sort of um, you look at these books and there's drawings of devils and, you know, goats having sex with nuns and things like this in the marginalia and, and things. And it's sort of amazing. And Marie, who was my uh, – I hired as a sort of an assistant, an interpreter, because, of course, the books are not only written in French, but they're written in their sort of oldie-worldie French. Um, so they needed to be kind of um, sort of translated for me. And they are literally recipes for calling up, you know, for basic – you know, things like impotence. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me is that um, people, and this goes back to what you were saying, Ali, before about that sort of thing. I think, and I'm paraphrasing that. Yeah. I mean, one of, you know, one of the sort of guiding lights again in writing historical fiction for me, particularly this one, was that not to treat people as anthropological specimens. Mm. They're not that far away from what we are today. And and one of the things in terms of witchcraft and witchcraft and the occult is that people are interested in the same things as they are today, which is basically they want more sex and they want more money. <laughs> and it's, there's this whole kind of thing through the 17th century of people um, going treasure hunting and stuff. And there was a lot of money believed to have been buried 
during the Fronde, which was a sort of civil war in, in mid-17th century Europe, uh, France, and, um, you know, the royals, uh, sort of aristocratic families burying their fortunes all over, over France and stuff that were often guarded by um, demons and spirits. So, you had, you know, so there's getting back to the book about grimoires, there's this, all these incredible stories about these shysters who would just take these rich women off treasure hunting mm. over and over again. It's like, ah, oh, you know, and it's all this stuff of like, you know, you go to a crossroad, you kill a hen, you say um, Ave Maria backwards five times. <laughs> like it's really kind of amazing. Um, and a little dark man will appear from the forest <laughs> and he'll have a tail and he'll take you to the tree. Like it's just, it's insane, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, people believe in homeopathy and stuff. So, you know, <laughs> and again, it's like, it's not that. Careful, you're and, in Byron. <laughs> and read, um, you know, and read their star signs and stuff. And, that you know, it's whatever. But, uh, like, it, it's easy to kind of mock this as well. Mm. And, I, you know, and one of the challenges in the book was writing it in a way, you know, writing people in a way that they, truly believe that God is a presence on earth and that devil has a presence on earth and, and that these things happen. And it's not, you know, that far away from what many people in the world believe today anyway. Mm. Chris, I was, I was going to ask you about that. There's a lot of learning in the book mm. about superstitions, about particular superstitions. There are a couple um, that just caught my eye that sprigs of lavender will ward off the plague. And that was that was part of your book. Obviously, they Doesn't were playing the plague. That yeah. worked. And the other one that I really liked was that the ashes of an arrow are the best cure for an arrow wound. How interesting did you find it, finding it was, out that sort of information? It was insane. And again, you know, like the others have said, it's sort of you've got to just leave out some of these things. And also, you know, again, I was aware that I was dealing in sort of things that are sound sort of very cliched and whatever so I was sort of trying to manage it in a way that sounds realistic um, I mean my look my favorite of all those things and it's the most gruesome is that for a long time it was believed that the only cure for epilepsy was to drink the blood of a freshly executed person so you had um, you know which sort of brings to mind the spectacle of all these people kind of you know standing around with a cup waiting for someone <laughs> poor guy you know because of course it was believed quite intuitively like that you know, blood is our life force, and if you can get the blood of a 22-year-old man or woman in the prime of their life, then why wouldn't you, you know, do you know, imbibe some of that? I mean, the whole look. I could talk about medical cannibalism for until the cows come home. It's a <laughs> whole Please thing. Don't. <laughs> it is actually a whole You've thing about part. you know people um, right up until even the 18th century. I think people taking skulls and grinding them up, and the moss that you you know, there's a whole trade in. Um, mm. You know, people who worked as executioners often because they – this is a bit gruesome, so I don't know if you want to stick around for this, but um, because <laughs> executioners often tortured people to the point of death, they actually knew their um, the, the, the functions of the body extremely well and they had a sideline in, in, in kind of medical practice and mm. set mm. bones and things like this. So, And, of course, they have a sort of a – an occult power themselves because they're given the legal right to – kill people and punish people and stuff like that. So they occupy a kind of really interesting position. So there's a whole trade for many years in, um, you know, the the finger of a hanged man is a cure for various things and, and stuff like that. And, and again, blood and skin and what was known as mummy, which is dried 
human flesh um, was, you know, a cure in many, many, many things. So, you know, menstrual blood, semen, all this kind of stuff. Intuitively, it's sort of, you know, I can't have a baby. Maybe I should drink some dried semen or something. You know, so it's sort of, you can sort of see the connection, right? We can, and again, we will sort of laugh about it, but it's... Um, it's uh, you know, homeopathy. Um, <laughs> don't, no. So yeah, it's it's just really incredibly. Uh, when I was really sick a few years ago, I, mean, I got like a real flu, a proper flu. And in the midst of this flu, I came across this book online, which was a history of medical cannibalism, and I ordered it. <laughs> kind of like you know, I had a real fever and everything. And this book arrived, and uh, it was just uh, yeah, it was a weird few days <laughs> reading that. Um, but yeah, like there's a, there was a great book that came out a couple of years ago, which was sort of a cultural history. Um, of Europe, but it was based on the diary of a guy who worked as an executioner for a really long time in in the area, which is now known as North, uh, sort of southern Germany. And uh, he uh, was a very reluctant executioner, reluctant executioner because it's a very low grade kind of task, even though you work for the government and stuff. And uh, he detail, you know, he sort of detailed his sales of body parts and things like this, and um, and the amount of people, you know, he killed thirty or forty people and. Um, <laughs> You know, cut off tongues and ears, and all you know, all sorts of stuff. Very, you know, drown. You know, certain crimes you would drown a woman. You'd take her out in a boat and and just hold her under and things. Like, you know, amazing stuff. Chris, we are running out of time. I'm sorry. I'm sure we could all sit here and listen to this endlessly. Yeah, it might be enough. Mm -hmm. right? I, I just wanted to end with one final question mm -hmm. to all of you. Um, something lovely that Hilary Mantel said. It's a piece of advice that she said she always gives to writers of historical fiction: is don't lie. You can mm -hmm. select highlight and omit, but just don't cheat. Do you agree with that, Ali? 100%. Uh, <laughs> Jesse? 97%. Sometimes you can handle the truth, you know, in an interesting mm. way. But look, you know, I think it depends what you set out to do in your book. And, and if you set out to say this is based on accurate research and um, mm. it, it's feasible, then yes, you shouldn't lie. Chris? Yeah, I mean, all fiction is a bit of a lie, right? But, yeah, you need to stay kind of um, loyal to your source and stuff. Otherwise, I would have got Conan Doyle into that <laughs> second book. But well, true. the name of our session was Making the Past Present, and haven't these three done the most magnificent job? Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers' Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.